Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time of the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Friday, April 16th, 2021. Headline in today's Chicago Sun-Times. It's all anybody's been talking about in the city of Chicago for the last 24 hours. Video details tragic shooting. Body cam footage appears to show 13-year-old Adam Toledo with a gun at one point. Then a moment later, raising his empty hands before Chicago cops shoot him. Now, when I booked my guest, who has uh, become a regular on the show, this was not on the list of items that we would be discussing. Uh, they have I still have a whole other list of things that we want to talk about, but obviously this is at the top of the list, and we must discuss it. Uh, so without further ado, I'll ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself, and then we'll take it away. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me again. Uh, my name is Jason Lee. I'm a political consultant, uh, digital strategist, uh, worked on a lot of uh, progressive campaigns with a lot of progressive organizations, a lot of labor unions uh, around the country, uh, and, uh, working more recently on a lot of stuff in the South, particularly in my home state of Texas. So um, I'm happy to be here and talk about uh, a whole host of things today. Yeah, so originally, uh, everybody know, oh, yeah, Jason, you're going to talk about Texas, you're going to talk about Georgia, you're going to talk about voter suppression, you're going to talk about strategies uh, that Biden's facing to uh, get his packages, infrastructure package through Congress, maybe talk about the Amazon vote uh, in Alabama, and then, uh, like in the last week between the shooting uh, uh, in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, and uh, the Adam Toledo uh, shooting here in Chicago, just all of a sudden we're dealing with police shootings again. And earlier uh, on the show, I think I told you this, Jason, I had uh, Troy LaRabier as my guest. Uh, folks, you can check that out after you're done listening to this uh, interview, if you haven't heard already. And uh, so I had a general conversation with Troy about the uh, Adam Toledo shooting. And he said something very powerful, which I've already related to you. Uh, 
And that is, um, don't say your life is on the line is if at that moment of crisis, you think first of saving your life as opposed to pausing to spare a life. It was a very powerful statement. I hadn't thought of the world that way, Jason, uh, until he said it. It gets What he's getting at is that issue where that police officer uh, had told Adam Toledo to raise his hands, put the uh, put it in, uh, raise his hands, and Toledo raised his hands. You can see there's no gun in it, and then the police officer shot him. It was like yeah. a split second. Hadn't thought of that. Your thoughts? Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think Troy is right. I mean, there's the, the the level of kind of cognitive dissonance around the narrative around policing and police officers, and then the reality on the ground. Um, you know. People who are back to blue, they, they talk about the sacrifice, the heroism, but we don't, you know, it's like we need to see it. You know, heroism is not firing and killing someone at the first, you know, at, 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 the, at, the, at, at, at the first risk. I mean, that's what anybody would do. That's what, you know, people do with the stand your ground laws or self-defense laws or castle doctrine. Civilians will fire at people all the time uh, in, in this country when they feel they're at any, you know, in danger. Um, but we say things like, you know, don't take it into your own hands, call the police because we expect the police to be able to operate with a level of, um, you know, deafness and, and kind of uh, skill and, and, and the ability to kind of diffuse a situation without resulting to uh, lethal violence. Um, the other thing is that, uh, bringing people in alive is, you know, preservation of life is the foundation of our criminal justice system. The only way you can help be held accountable for your crimes based on the laws that we have is you need to be alive to do that. You need to be able to face a jury of your peers or a panel uh, of judges, you know, in the case of a juvenile and have your day in court, you're innocent until proven guilty. And so the first, uh, you know, line, so to speak, of that criminal justice system is the police department. And they've got to have a fundamental commitment, you know, to bring people to justice. And you can't bring them to justice if you're killing them uh, before they have their day in court. That is not justice in this country. Uh, and we've thought that for a long time. And so if police officers are unable to deftly, skillfully bring people uh, to justice without killing them, despite the fact that they may have weapons. I mean, in Chicago, for example, these things are foundational. There are more gun, you know, it's easier to get a gun in many neighbors than a bottle of water. I mean, that's, if, if, if someone having a gun is, is, is reason to kill them in this city, well, then the police should just be a firing squad, right? I mean, it's, it, there are certain realities of policing in Chicago that if, if folks can't comp deal with those realities, if they're not able to deal with those, you, you know, risk and, and, and manage them in a way that's better than how you and I would manage them, then what use uh, are they? Why are we paying, you know, their salaries? Because you and I could be out there, you know, fire or trigger happy. You know, that's not hard to do. Uh, and many civilians have been, and we've seen tragedies related to that. But if police are going to operate the same way as George Zimmerman and some of these other people, then, then, then at least let's save the money. You know, uh, if we're going to pay all this money for them, they've got to be better than you or I out there with a gun. And right now I'm just not seeing that time and time again, I'm not seeing them as any better than what you and I would be out there if, if we had a gun and they told us to kind of bring some order to the situation. 
the other point that's been on my mind, uh, Jason, uh, is the different thing that a police officer seems sees when he sees uh, a black man with a gun uh, and a white man with a gun, or in the case of Adam Toledo, running through a um, Latino neighborhood. Uh, I don't even know if he saw Adam Toledo with the gun, but he was running through a Latino neighborhood. And of course, I'm thinking of Kyle Rittenhouse up in Wisconsin who was armed and was just walking down the street. And now there was a story that just broke, or at least I just saw it in The Guardian, that talked about uh, police officers making contributions to uh, Kyle Rittenhouse's defense fund. Uh, and uh, that's troubling right there in itself, that police officers were making contributions to Kyle Rittenhouse's defense fund. The man killed two people. Uh, and uh, But it's also troubling this notion that you s- a, a white man with a gun is one thing and a black man with a gun is something else, particularly in a time and age, as you pointed out, where like, Second Amendment gun rights is supposedly this universal theme that the Republican Party has dedicated itself to. I get emails every day from Republican candidates saying that radical leftists are trying to take away your rights to own, your Second Amendment protected rights to own a gun. So please just talk about some of these issues, uh, how you see it, the difference between a white man having a gun and a black man having a gun. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, so there's there's a couple things, right? So one, like our society is founded in you know fundamental inequities um, that you know when we talk about institutional racism, so many aspects of how we live are shaped by both our racial history uh, and also um, existing forms of racial discrimination. As a consequence, and and constitutive of that, we also live in a society where m- many people hold explicit and implicit biases based on race, ethnicity, and other um, uh, descriptive categories. So any institution in our society will have to grapple with those realities. And if it is to be a just institution, it will have to develop uh, practices, policies, uh, processes to uh, mitigate um, those inherent obstacles to building just institutions. Some institutions have a stronger uh, commitment to that process than others. No institution has 100% successfully completed it whether you're looking at the most liberal institutions in our country uh, to the most conservative. And I've been a part of all kinds of institutions where certain levels of discrimination or bias still exist. Uh, But it's a constant process. People who integrate into these institutions continue to try to call out discriminatory practices. And these institutions ideally continue to try to get better uh, at how they deal with these realities. So, that's all to say that policing is, is, is just another one of those institutions that is, has to grapple with all of these foundational uh, uh, things that I, that I just spoke about. 
And it's not clear that policing is one of those institutions that has been very good at developing the processes and practices to help mitigate against bias uh, that we know exists. So to see bias reflected in the practices of police officers and the institution of policing is not surprising. Uh, and it's expected. Um, but that said, fundamentally, though, like we have, in my opinion, like uh, a related problem, which can't be addressed through necessarily bias training, right? Which is the fact that, you know, the Latin kings, for example, um, you know, exist, right? The black disciples exist, the gangster disciples exist. Um, the stones exist. Like in, in Chicago, we have a highly segregated city, highly concentrated poverty, which leads to uh, a concentration of certain types of criminal activity. Um, I mean, that's those are facts. Those aren't anything that we can we can hide or pretend don't exist. That means that be, for 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 just basic kind of policing strategy, to the extent that we rely on policing strategy, you're and just based on a responsiveness to certain types of criminal activity, you are going to have, um, a, you know, a majority of your policing uh, resources in certain neighborhoods that we consider to be high crime areas, which means you're going to be putting your police force uh, interaction with certain populations disproportionately over others. Um, and police officers are much more likely to be interacting uh, with people with whom, they, for whom they believe, you know, are engaged in criminal activities. Uh, and so I, I don't think we can necessarily put these things in a vacuum. Uh, I mean, they're contextual. So I get why there's concern if you are a police officer and you see, you know, Toledo and whoever Toledo was with, and there's a shootout in, you know, Little Village. Like that has a certain resonance. We know what that potentially could mean. We know what surrounds that kind of activity. We all understand that. Um, and whatever kind of hypothesis or, or, or assumptions that a police officer is making about like the kind of character of those individuals, you know, I understand that as well. My whole point is, regardless of all that, you still have to be better if you were to deserve both the honors, you know, the, the, the social honor uh, that is being requested and also the, the significant financial resources that are being outlaid. We have to be able to say that some people, some institutions have to be better in our society. And if they aren't better, then we need to go in a different direction. So that that to me is the fundamental question. And local law enforcement is an institution that in terms of how we staff it, it really doesn't make sense relative to the amount of authority uh, and power that each individual officer has. Um, and the main reason I think for that is because we use our police force as kind of a basically a very inefficient expensive surveillance system. When they look at the studies of how policing impacts crime, to the extent that it has any positive impact on lowering crimes, it's basically just based on their presence. It's not them actually doing or intervening. It's just them being there as a deterrent. 
And so you're just like, all right, well, we need thousands of people to just kind of drive around and be a presence. And we can't afford to have a good high filter on who those people are because we just need a bunch of them. And, you know, they don't really need to be that qualified. They're just going to be driving around, like, you know, doing stuff. But then every now and again, something like this happens. And the same person we hired basically with the criteria of just can you drive around and like be a presence is now in a life or death situation where judgment, intelligence, uh, diplomacy, psychology, all these things come into play. But we haven't screened for that. We put that person at alley. That person is an alley, but we never hired someone who we actually wanted in that alley. We hired someone who we just wanted to drive around and like be seen in a car. And, and so now that's the problem. Now you got someone who was hired for the car who's in a situation that we would never want that type of person to be. We want someone much more, you know, uh, better in a lot of different ways in that alley. And so that to me is one of the big problems is that like we, we don't really take seriously the level of authority inherent in the police department and the type of people that we'd actually want wielding that authority. Uh, that is a very deep uh, analysis, and I uh, agree with uh, pretty much everything you said in your analysis of it. And now I'm going to bring you into the political reality of the world that you exist in as a political strategist. Any move that you as a political strategist would make uh, on behalf of a Democrat who would advocate sort of the, uh, the worldview you just articulated in terms of what's right for police officers would immediately be hit with the accusation from the Republicans that you're coddling criminals, that you're soft on crime, that you uh, are tolerating a crime. Uh, just all the rhetoric. You know it better than I do, uh, Jason, that the Republicans employ. I've seen it already coming out from Darren Bailey, who, state senator who's running for uh, governor as a Republican here in the state of Illinois. So how do you counter that politically as a strategist? Yeah, I mean, so I'm someone personally who's like, and people who know me, you know, if anyone who knows me is listening to this, they'll be nodding their head. But like, I've been almost uniquely obsessed with crime since I came to Chicago. And the reason I was obsessed with crime when I came to Chicago is because when I was doing organizing in in, in communities, it was always the number one issue that people had. Um, that they were concerned about. And these are like, you know, this is Austin. This is West Inglewood. These are African-American communities. These were the people for wh- whom I came to Chicago, be, uh, you know, wanting to work with, to serve, to kind of support in any way. Like these were the communities that I kind of imagined in my head that I would be operating. In. And, you know, you come in as a progressive and, and liberal with all these ideas. and We can do this. and We can do that. And then then you start listening. And the people are saying, yeah, yeah, that's great. But like crime, I'm afraid about crime. Like it's not safe. My kids aren't safe. I'm not safe. So I became obsessed with this thing because I'm like, man, if this is what the people are concerned about, then this is the key to unlocking the kind of potential of it. If we can present, if we can be the ones who are perceived as presenting solutions to crime and and creating a more safe community, then we can organize the folks to help gain the power we need to do all these other things. Um, And so it was like a key to unlocking all of the potentiality that you would need, right? Particularly, this was like after the 2015 election or during and after the 2015 election where we saw, you know, African-American communities, you know, vote with Rahm Emanuel, despite the fact that, you know, our view was that Rahm Emanuel was was bad for these communities or what have you and wasn't wasn't doing enough. Uh, And so I was like, we need to really listen to folks and figure out how we can actually make ourselves more credible 
um, uh, in these communities. So I've been I've been focused on crime. So part of the answer is like, and actually it's funny because I actually wrote my master's thesis on this subject. So I feel like this is something that we could have a whole different show on. But like the first thing is like we have to acknowledge crime. We have to acknowledge crime is a problem. Most of the battle we've lost is because we don't want to talk about it. Right. And so people aren't necessarily entirely convinced with the conservative uh, view on what makes people safe. But at least they're acknowledging that it's a problem. They're meeting people's fear with a response that acknowledges that fear. So often the progressive thing is like crime is trumped up. It's a myth that the, that the Republicans are kind of trumping up. It's really not there. We really shouldn't be talking about it. It's racist to talk about it. You know, all these kind of things. Uh, and then that knocks us off the block. You know, that gives that that basically, you know, puts us at a huge disadvantage, like most of the time. A big part of having credibility on these issues is to elevate them and to acknowledge that they're important and that that's where we're starting. See, we usually when we talk about criminal justice progressives, we start from a reform standpoint. Right. So we're like saying like the biggest problem is like there's like discrimination and racism in our criminal justice system. Right. But that's not how people feel. Right. If you do any polling, even in a black community, police reform will not will be number seven, number six. Crime and public safety will be number one. So even in the people we think on our base, that argument doesn't kind of make sense to people. The final thing I'll say about it, too, is that. We also need to recognize why people. Have critiques of our materialist argument on crime. So when we finally do get progressives to acknowledge crime, it's like, well, the reason why people commit crime, basically the only reason why people commit crime is they're poor. Like we need to like fix it. Right. And look, I get like the reality that there is a huge part of it that has to do with economic reality, development, uh, poverty, lack of jobs, et cetera. That's kind of your foundational thing. But when you live in a working class or poor neighborhood that's crime plagued, you're looking at your street and you're saying, all right, everyone's poor. Not everyone's kid is a gang member. Not everyone's kid is selling drugs. Not everyone's kid is a killer. So you can't tell me as someone outside my community that the reasons like this because we're poor because we've been poor. And some of us still make different choices. And if you just say it's because you're poor, you're taking away my agency. You're impugning on my dignity because I worked hard to make a different choice. And I want to know why these other people aren't making the choice. Right. And that's hard to grapple with because it's super complicated. But when we don't give space for people's live reality around how they relate to the choices and decisions people make, because part of the African-American tradition has always been that even in victimization, you still have agency and dignity. And when we try to take that from people by saying you're solely the result of your material circumstances, it doesn't map onto their self-imagination of themselves and what they're able to do. And so we need to come up with a narrative that one acknowledges crime, acknowledges how people experience it, acknowledges how they think about what the potential causes might be, and have a nuanced discussion about how we can combine the material and the, and the economic resources with also some of the concerns around cultivation and acculturation that people in communities facing violence have. And I think if we can start talking about it like that in an earnest and serious way, I think we'll have a great chance of displacing the conservatives because, frankly, the one advantage that we have over them is they still failed, right? So they talk tough, 
They acknowledge people's fears. They check those boxes. But on the results side, they're still failing. And so that's our open. Oh, no, that's uh, absolutely. Uh, they're still failing. That's the point I always make. Uh, Jason is the old guy. I'm like, <laughs> I've been in Chicago since 1981, and all I heard, all I've ever heard, is you got to be tough on crime. You got to all these liberals in the ACLU who are saying uh, the police have overcrossed the line. That they're deterring police from doing their jobs. And then you don't know how many times I've heard that the version of what something Rahm Emanuel said, that police are in a fetal position because of, yep. of uh, lawsuits. I've heard that since 1981. I'm like, wait, wait a minute. They, <laughs> this notion of police in a fetal position just not bare reality to anything I'm seeing in Chicago. Before you respond, I'll just tell you, the, 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 the shooting of Adam Toledo began with a police investigation of gunfire. You talk about just the reality of crime in Chicago. There was a shooting. Nobody was, I, I don't believe anyone was hit, but there was a shooting. And that's freaking scary. You know, so. No, it, it is scary. And like, yeah, it, it, yeah. I mean, this is like, anybody who's being realistic. Look, I, I, I'm from Houston, right? Houston is the fourth largest city in the United States, right? So it's not like I'm from, I'm, I'm from a small town. Um, when I came to Chicago and I started organizing, like, in some of these neighborhoods, like, I'm not going to lie, it felt different. Like, there was, there are definitely challenges. There, I had a gun pulled on me twice uh, organizing in West Inglewood, right? But I, I also was harassed by the police. Um, just trying to organize um, because they thought I might be somebody else. So I understand the dynamics and 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 the difficulties of of of, of operating in these some of these communities and the fact that there are uh, things happening that 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 are that are unsafe here. But we have to do our work before somebody has a gun. Our record of intervention at that point is, is, is highly ineffective under like regardless, right? Like, first of all, guns are too easy to, are easy to get. And that's not necessarily a local policing issue. That's a kind of much broader issue that we're not really, if we're being hundred percent honest, we're not going to be able to deal with at the local level. It's something for the mayor or whoever else to talk about because people hear it and it, and it lights a light bulb. But if you're actually serious about solutions, you're wasting time talking about that. We're not going to solve that problem. The focus of the police department on like removing guns from the street is a waste of time. It, it, you're, you're trying to you're trying to empty the ocean with a with a with a with a thumb thimble. Um, it, it what it does is it creates a relationship between law enforcement and people uh, in these communities who might have something information about certain criminal enterprises. And it creates such a combative relationship that police are unable to get any intelligence about crime that happens. The community policing model has you going into these CAPS meetings, talking to Deaconess Jones and Minister Ray. And those are great people and they do need information with the police and to be able to talk things out. But they don't know what's going on in the streets. If you want intelligence that will allow you to actually prevent crime before it happens, it's the very people we're harassing, that we're, we're, we're throwing up against fences, that we're pressing 
who develop such a deep-seated hatred and mistrust of the police, those are the ones we have intel. Not everybody out there, even who has a gun, wants people to die. Not everyone out there believes in all the murders that are going on. You could actually get information from those people that could actually save lives if we had a relationship with some of those guys who are kind of in and out of that street life on the liminal edges that wasn't based on this kind of pressure campaign that barely yields anything anyway and doesn't stop the violence. Too much of our resources in Chicago and policing are on the patrol side, which is basically just a numbers game. They use it as a management tool. So they have to get all these quotas for how many stops they make so their sergeants, whoever else, can make sure they're out there working. Because otherwise, they might just be out there sleeping or something like that. But we need more resources shifted to the investigatory research side of law enforcement so that we can be conducting investigations, figuring out the links between different enterprises, you know, uh, you know, going undercover in certain scenarios, disrupting patterns of violence before they happen. That's where the resources need to shift. We've got too much money on patrol and patrol is not able to do anything but show up after the fact and potentially result in a Toledo situation. Our patrol resources are basically a highly paid, very inefficient uh, uh, surveillance system. And if that's the case, I'd rather just replace them with actual surveillance and then shift the actual human resources to the investigatory detective side and hire for that explicitly. What we do now is you get hired on as patrol with no qualifications, and then you get promoted up to detective. No, I, I don't want to promote you up to detectives. I want to go hire people who know how to investigate wherever they are. We watch all the shows, you know? Sometimes the best detective is some nerdy guy who has a data degree or something like that. Like, I'd rather be out here recruiting people for investigations, just promoting the guys we let into patrol to drive around. So there's a lot of things. I'm a guy who I'm not a big I'm a guy who functionally is like, I want to really understand how policing works today. And I've spent a lot of time to do that and actually figure out something that could work because we do need something to deal with some of the crimes that we have going on. But the way we've structured it now, which is so inefficient and ineffective, it, 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 it's sad. man. It's, it's really sad. And there's all kind of reasons for that. But what I hate is when the mayor of Chicago doesn't tell the people the truth about what kind of things we would need to do to actually have a force that could achieve anything. Because right now you're talking about a sub 30 percent murder clearance rate, high rates of brutality. Uh, we're failing on every dimension. And one more thing I want to flag. This is kind of related, but why did the mayor allow the interim chief back to do a full-scale reformation of the police structure, which then had to be overturned completely by the new permanent hire. Who lets an interim police superintendent completely <laughs> rearrange the entire organization of the force? That kind of leadership from the mayor, from someone who's supposed to be a policing expert, shocking to me. All right. So, uh, and, and that was a test of my sh relatively short-term political memory when you, when you just said that, uh, most of the people who listen to the show are from Chicago, although we do have outside people from outside the country. So testing my memory, uh, Jason, I think you're, you're alluding to the moment when she brought in the uh, back from California. Is that what you're alluding yeah, to? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, to re uh, who replaced Eddie Johnson. Uh, yeah. who got trouble. They, they, they threw him out of town because he was seen uh, 
kissing a woman who's not his wife at a bar. Chicago's shocked by that. Uh, so they yeah. threw him out. They bring in Charlie back. Now it's coming back to me. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, you're right. I don't, don't look at me for explanations of why Chicago rearranged Bears do what the they force. do. He completely rearranged the entire structure of the force. He moved all, he moved, you know, we had all these centralized policing re- assets. He said, no, we don't want centralized assets. We want all the assets in the neighborhood. Detectives will go into the districts. All these other people are going to go in the district's going to be completely decentralized. I think a, a academic called it one of the most decentralized structures he had ever seen in policing in the United States. And you let an interim guy do that. And then Brown comes in and we have all that unrest. And what do they do? They have to then re they have to re-centralize all the resources, creating all these citywide units, taking police out of the districts. That takes time, money, training, all that time you wasted by having an interim guy develop a system that the new guy that's a permanent didn't even believe in. That's rookie. That's a rookie mistake. That's, that's, that's a mistake from a mayor who's never even heard the word police. Not a mistake from a mayor who was supposed to, who was the head of the police board and head of the police task force. This mayor was supposed to be better on public safety and policing, both in terms of reform and effectiveness fighting crime. And sadly, it, it, it's been a disaster. And, and I really want to know why. Well, I do not have any answers for you as to why. I'm not privy to the uh, inner thoughts of uh, the mayor, Lori Lightfoot, or anybody in her administration. So unfortunately, I'm going to fail you on that front. Uh, but I will ask, since you raised the issue of Mayor Lori Lightfoot, uh, we'll um, uh, get your response to a, uh, a question I put to Troy earlier today. And he had a fascinating response, which wonder what yours is. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, in her press statement uh, yesterday, when after the, um, the the footage of the shooting was publicized, uh, made a comment, and she was, I think, striving for uh, empathy. She said, Chicago has failed Adam Toledo. It's a, a, a failure of the entire city of Chicago. We have failed him. Uh, and uh, she went on to, to specify the you know, uh, how he was left alone, et cetera, et cetera, uh, how we failed him. But uh, your general reaction when, uh, to that comment from the mayor? You know, it was disappointing because for two weeks, the mayor tried to shift blame from the police department to, you know, his family, his community, uh, the, the the culture of, of, of gang, you know, gang culture, et cetera. And look, I'm not going to say that, 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 there's not critiques of, of, of gang culture in Chicago for certain uh, and the gang reality. But this young man, but this young man, Toledo had a family. Laquan McDonald was a ward of the state. And we know that he had a lot of challenges, um, you know, and, and that we should look at very closely in terms of how we interacted with the system um, overall. Toledo, young Toledo had a loving family. Uh, that he lived with. He was known in the community. He was known by his teachers and his counselors. He wasn't someone who had been lost to, to, to kind of the, the, the ether, the streets that, that no one was accountable for. That was, you know, just, just on his, on his own. Yes, he was, he was out. Yes, he was hanging out with certain, certain individuals. But if you've ever listened to people who get involved in gang activity in certain neighborhoods, what you find is it's a more nuanced situation than just good kid turns bad or good kid corrupted by the streets. These are 
kind of neighborhood associations in a lot of ways. And if you are a young man between a certain age group and you want to socialize in your neighborhood, you end up kind of, whether you even want to or not, part of this story. Because if someone from a rival gang is driving through your neighborhood, you being outside, hanging out with your friends, there's not going to be, oh, well, he's in a gang. He's not. You're all from over here. You're all targets. You're all, you know, potentially subjects. And these things are complicated for people outside of this culture to really understand how one day, you know, you're playing, you know, flag football uh, with your friends and you're 11. And then next, you know, a couple years later, you're 14 and you're still, you're just hanging out with your friends. But now that hanging out with my friends has an entirely different meaning based on the community I live in, you know, whose older brother is this, that, and the third. And you have a choice to make. Either I'm going to like keep hanging out with my friends and kind of take account for the reality of the world we live in, or I'm going to completely distance myself and stay in the house and not be a part of any of this. That doesn't mean you've completely decided to drop out of school or, 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 or completely you know, take, you know, change the trajectory of your life. But there are certain things that you may end up being involved in just as a function of wanting to be around your friends and be with the people that you've been growing up with. And uh, if, if, if we're going to have an execution uh, 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 standard for every young person in Chicago who kind of finds themselves in that liminal situation, well, then we're going to have even more blood on our hands. Uh, and so you can talk about, yeah, I mean, maybe we have failed our young people that we allowed them to live in a world where these realities exist, but that's decades old. Uh, and there's probably decades to go in terms of the gang culture of this city. Um, and, 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 and I'm not certain exactly how we're going to figure that part of it out. But even within that, we can do better for the Adam Toledo's of the world because it doesn't have to be a death sentence and it damn sure can't be a death sentence by our hands. It can't be because in between, you know, him being out there, there could be a whole host of interventions that could have helped that young man. Right. So imagine if the police officer were able to detain him without killing him and he goes in front of the juvenile court and maybe he gets deferred into some program and maybe that opens his eyes. Like we're trying to build systems to where somebody has some situations going on and we can move them in different spaces that may give them a chance to reform themselves or get on a better path. If the very front line of engagement is killing them, well, then we're not allowing the rest of the system to even have a chance to work. That's where we failed Adam Toledo, Mrs. Mayor, uh, Madam Mayor, excuse me. Uh, we failed him at that moment because that other failure you're talking about, yes, it, it exists, but, but that's not something we want to harp on as if we can flip a switch and take that away. And so when we talk about that at press conferences, we're giving these people, we're giving the citizens of the city a false notion. We have to be able to operate effectively within the world in which we exist in. And that's and, and that's what the mayor of Chicago needs to be accountable to, because she's not going to change gang culture in this city. She's not going to get rid of guns in this city. The things that she was talking about are things she knows she can't do. What she can do is make sure that we have a police force that isn't kidding Adam Toledo in and out. And that's the one part of this whole thing she doesn't want to talk about. By the way, uh, I was taking notes on you. You said gang culture. Uh, again, I've been living in this town for 40 years. I'm not from Chicago. But like you, you're not from Chicago either. But sometimes it's an advantage when you come to a city uh, as a stranger and drop in and you watch it. And 
gang culture in Chicago is more than just street gangs. I'm just going to go on a riff and then we're going to move on. But it's like the mentality of Chicago. We're so tribal. Yeah. Like this neighborhood, that neighborhood, even that thing about the north side, the south side, the west side, you know, White Sox fan, Cub fan. We're so tribal. I noticed that when yeah. I first got here, Jason. People are just instinctive. They always want to point. Like, it's like, and the, they always, they want to put you out the other side in a box and reduce their, <laughs> reduce them to something that they can control and understand. And it's just, it's so instinctive. It's like block to block in some ways. And the retaliatory attitude in Chicago, like if someone says something to you, you got to say something back. You got to, you and punch me, I'll punch you. And people in Chicago, they're like proud of it. You know what I'm saying? Like Al Capone, they're proud of Al Capone. He's not even from Chicago, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. You're so proud of him. He's from New York, actually. But but yeah. the, I, when you went on that riff about gang culture, I was like, oh, my God, that's just Chicago. You, you know what I'm saying? And then, like, you're, you're exactly guys right. join the police department. Exactly right. It's in their head. You know, so yeah, anyway. And, 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 and so, yeah, and I think that you're exactly right. Well, I love those when people say, I think you're exactly right. I think I'm going to take that clip out and just play it every now and then <laughs> to my family. So Jason, all right, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll segue out of this uh, discussion through Christian Clark. I sent mm -hmm. this to you. Uh, I just became aware of this today. This yeah. blew my mind. I got to get your thoughts on this. So Christian Clark is an appointee exceedingly, uh, qualified lawyer. She's going to go work for the Justice Department. I'm sure the Democrats will probably have to pass her, get her confirmed on a on a party vote. Um, she party vote, yeah. a party line vote. I meant, yeah. Um, she was uh, before a Senate. I think it was the Judiciary Committee. I can't remember. She's for a Senate committee that's going to uh, rule on her um, confirmation to this position in the Justice Department. And Senator Ted Cruz from your home state of Texas, heck of a job, Texans, on that one, uh, was uh, interrogating her about an article she wrote in which the headline said something about defund the police. And this article was written before she was, an, obviously, a Joe Biden appointee uh, to for the Justice Department, and she was opining about what she thought about shifting funds away from policing toward things like social workers, et cetera, and so forth, which was a rallying cry throughout the country all last year. Uh, and she was backing away from defund the police. So it's clearly that the Republicans have seized this as an issue, getting back to what I was started talking about earlier, that they could force the Democrats to retreat from things that Democrats uh, supposedly believe, on, believe in by scaring people with the notion that somehow the Democrats are weak on crime. And the, I don't know if you had an opportunity to watch the exchange uh, between Christian Clark uh, and Ted Cruz. Uh, but that's essentially what happened. He kept challenging her and reading her words back to her. And she was sort of moving away from what she had to say because she didn't want to be pinned down. Obviously, the people who prepped her for that confirmation hearing is that were saying, don't say defund the police. Uh, your general thoughts about all this? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of what we talked about before. It's not clear that Democrats have a clear position on crime. Democrats have a lot of clear positions on criminal justice reform, but it's very ambivalent across from the standpoint of the party 
you know, messaging apparatus, what we would say about crime, right? Um, we don't tend to, we don't have too many democratic leaders who are known as being leaders on crime now. Now, there was a period in the early 90s where Democrats tried to take ownership of the issue of crime and public safety. Joe Biden was one of the key figures who was trying to do this. The reason why Democrats were doing it, wanted to do this, because at that time, crime was one of the most salient political issues and Republicans were using it to defeat Democrats all over the country, particularly in even liberal states. So remember, Giuliani beats Dinkin in New York City, Pete Wilson in uh, California for governor. So we're losing places that we're not supposed to lose. And the main issue that they were using against us at that time was crime. And so you have Democrats that try to say, no, we are the ones who actually are going to be the leaders on crime. That was a lot of the impetus behind the 1994 crime bill, right? And then like that happened, it basically worked from a political standpoint. Like it, it kind of, it took the issue of crime and it, and it sublimated it throughout the rest of the 90s. And it kind of, that combined with the fact that crime rates started coming down uh, over a 20 year period, it kind of neutralized it a little bit uh, for Republicans and they shifted to many other issues, right? And then you had the libertarian wing of the Republican Party that started to get involved in criminal justice and mass incarceration reform for fiscal reasons. And the conversation kind of dramatically shifted. Right. And then when you have the Black Lives Matter, fast forward 20 years, the Black Lives Matter movement, you start excavating some of that stuff that Democrats had done to try to you know, deal with this political issue 20 years before. And people are getting condemned and everyone's got to apologize for what they were doing and what they were saying. And forgive me, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done that. And so since then, other than apologizing for stuff people did in the past, they don't really have anything to say on crime, right? And then you fast forward to 2020, where we have another police uprising, and now the defund police comes. It's like, oh, whoa, whoa, like, we don't have anything to say about what we want to do, but we damn sure know we can't say we want to do that. <laughs> and so you're just in this liminal space where you don't have a defined brand on an issue. And the one thing that is bubbling up is a brand that you just definitely are trying to reject. And it's, it's hard, right? It doesn't work super well because when the Republicans want to define you by that, you don't have anything else to say that you are, you know, you've got nothing else to point to, um, you know? And so that's why I think, you know, Biden has tried to carve out a new democratic crime position. He knows he can't just rehash what he did in the early nineties. But he's trying to come up with a slightly modified position, you know, which is more investment in policing, but investment that helps policing reform, build better relationships with communities. At the same time, we're going to rebuild the social safety net and invest in communities through all these different ways and reduce crime by improving the economic reality of working class folks and people of color. Uh, and we're going to have a better, more responsive, better trained uh, policing force, right? And Biden's kind of trying to engineer that. He hasn't really got a lot of other Democrats who know or are willing to speak on it the way he is. And Kristen Clark probably got in a situation where keeping it real goes wrong, because if you're an activist in the streets, you say whatever you want to say. You say what you believe. 
But if you're someone who thinks you might be in the chance for the running for a nomination, you probably need to be more careful what you say. Because you <laughs> might imagine a moment where you're sitting there in front of Ted Cruz and you trying to get a nomination. So people like that who are trying to be too woke for their position, you know, this is the kind of consequence. Activists, those people, they need to say whatever they want to say. And they need to not even worry about the near-term political reality, right? They need to say what they feel is the truth. But the rest of the people who are involved in electoral politics, they need to make decisions about and be very careful about the words they use. Yeah, well put. And by the way, she's not even in electoral politics. She could probably get away with it if she was running for office. (laughs) Oh, man, Cruz was so pleased with himself. I don't know if you saw it. He was like, oh, I got her. I'm going to show the world how good I am. Yeah. One more more time, Jason. Heck of a job, Texas, with that one, with that senator, having elected that senator. All right. Now, we're going to close with the political discussion. See, I didn't know. I made the mistake. I'm not a lawyer, but the lawyer is always told, do not start an examination by asking a question you didn't know the answer to. And I didn't know that you had such a passionate interest in criminal justice issues. So I thought that would be like a 10-minute yeah. thing, part of the conversation, and we'll get into <laughs> nitty-gritty political stuff. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, I should have done my homework. Um, oh, that little re- revelation got me nowhere. All right, so we'll close with what I was going to ask you uh, originally. And we're seeing these efforts uh, by Republicans uh, in Georgia and in Texas, your home state, uh, to try to re- – undo what went down in 2020 presidential and in Georgia with the 2021 special Senate races by making it, I don't know what, more cumbersome, more difficult, uh, less easy uh, for Democrats, uh, particularly black Democrats, black people to vote. And uh, the Democrats call them out for it. And the Republicans say, no, 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 this is not Jim Crow. This is not uh, going after black people. This is just reform. Uh, so my question to you is, will the Republicans get away with it? Will it be enough uh, for them to, for instance, be victorious in Georgia? I think Warnock's up for a re-election in 2022 already. Uh, or can the Democrats surmount this? Your thoughts on this? Yeah, this is a great question. I've been intimately working on these issues for the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm working with a lot of the groups. So there's a lot of analyses of the impact of these laws. Um, and we don't fully know, we don't really know exactly how they will impact folks. We have reason to think that they could have a very negative impact um, on people's voting. Um on certain aspects of voting. And there are different statutes in each state uh, that I won't get into, but but basically people are doing the analysis and trying to assess exactly what the impact of voting will, could, could be. Historically, though, Democrats have been effective at using um, these laws as mobilizing tools, uh, using them um, as ways of, you know, because if you, if you can tell people that uh, there are people trying to take away their vote, you know, that can use, that can, piss them off and make them want to vote even more. Um, and that has been a useful you know, tool in the past. I think Democrats are doing a couple things. Uh, they are raising money off of this. 
If you're on any Democratic email list, you've seen something around voting laws and you need to give money. I think that's probably going to be effective. Uh, They are getting corporations to donate money to groups that do voter voter registration and voter education, kind of C3 groups that are like nonpartisan, but still are mobilizing the type of people who probably vote Democrat. That probably could pay off. you know, and they're and they're defining and they're defining Republicans uh, in ways that I think could be useful. One is focusing on the racial aspect, which can motivate African Americans, you know, other voters of color, as well as you know certain liberal whites who don't want to be associated with racism. And the other thing is it is tying the Republican Party continuously to this idea of stop this deal, because these voter suppression laws are very much animated and motivated by the idea that there was something fraudulent going on uh, last election. And that was the idea that led to what happened on January 6th, et cetera. And there are certain voters who hate that kind of thing and want the Republican Party to distance itself from that. But as long as it's pursuing this voter suppression laws, it continues to be very much tied to that sentiment. And so I think there are ways in which the Democratic Party can, um, can use these fights to galvanize resources and galvanize their voters. And so it'll be that kind of galvanization versus whatever negative impact that these laws do have and whichever one kind of wins out will be kind of how the outcome of this stuff works. Ultimately, Democrats nationally, I think, believe that we need national legislation because this kind of whack-a-mole thing is not good regardless of how it goes. And so in a way, these state fights are ways of generating enthusiasm and, 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 and support to maybe support a national voting rights effort, but in the, I mean, a national voting rights legislation, but in the meantime, got to make lemonade out of lemons and use these, these bad bills as ways to strengthen our own base. Well put. And, uh, listen, uh, while you were riffing on that, I was thinking, you know, he's right. I always say this, Uh, The Democrats went to sleep after Barack Obama was elected in 2008, and in 2010 they got clobbered, Uh, and they got clobbered uh, in 2012 to a certain degree as well, lost the Senate. So your point's well taken. Uh, If the counterattack by the Republican Party keeps Democrats on their toes, keeps them from falling asleep, then ultimately it it will have been a benefit to uh, the Democrats. But what a weird benefit. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, a man. Uh, we'll close with this. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, when the, Just when I didn't think the world could get any crazier. Uh, so Brian Kemp, the governor of uh, Georgia, uh, was won in 2018 by, among other things, uh, voter suppression, but also clinging to uh, Donald Trump, uh, lost support. Uh, among some MAGA folks because he didn't say uh, that the Georgia election had been stolen uh, and so has tried to win back MAGA with this voting law that would make it difficult and more cumbersome, as I said, uh, for uh, black people to vote. Now he's being challenged. I don't know if you saw this in a Republican primary, but by a gentleman named Vernon Jones who... uh, Used to be a uh, state senator uh, and uh, was a Democrat. He's a black man. Now he's running as like a rabid MAGA hat wearing Republican 
The world could not get more bizarre in Georgia. Yeah. Jason, the, the thought that to. I don't believe Vernon Jones in a million years is going to beat Brian Kemp. Yeah. No. You did not hear about it? No. It's, it, I just saw the paper, the article about it. It's just, you know. That's uh, definitely the category of. It's bad for him, uh, for sure, I think. I mean, maybe, but because he's going to need all of MAGA with him in that general election. And if he has a primary with this guy and things are ugly and some of the MAGA people get, you know, vote for Vernon and then they, they get pissed off and they never really get back on the Kemp train. You know, again, it's not going to take many votes for him to lose the governor's mansion, uh, given what we know, you know. And so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's good news for the prospects of Democrats to have Kemp facing a challenge. You know, the one, but I think your point is spot on that. Uh, again, a lot of these guys who are leading this voter suppression stuff are either people who feel like they need to do something to get back in the good graces of MAGA or people who want to kind of be one of the new faces of MAGA. And what the people I talk to, for example, for example, in Texas, where they have these bills are going on, they said that what's different about this round of voter suppression laws is that this round actually has a grassroots push. So before, when the problems did this, it was like lobbyists or consultants who came up with these ideas, trying to manipulate so they can win election. The average Republican voter wasn't really like in tune with this. Now you have Republican grassroots people lobbying and, and at the Capitol fighting for these voter suppression laws because they're motivated by uh, the Trumpian view that the last election was fraudulent and stolen. And that's why Republicans are reacting very differently to corporate pressure or any other pressure because they're, 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 they're like, yeah, we don't care what y'all are saying. Our base wants this. And if our base wants it, we need to do it uh, regardless of what any corporation or anybody else says. So that's the different calculus is that there's much more push behind this round than there was in previous rounds of, of you know voter ID laws and things we've seen in the past. So this uh, is guaranteed to be going on. We'll be talking about this with Jason Lee, I know, uh, for uh, many shows to come. Uh, and the next time you're on, I promise, folks, we will do a deep dive in Texas. The man <laughs> knows more about Texas than should be allowed. Sure. So we're going to take a deep dive on Texas because uh, they're up to no good in Texas. And I, I noticed some demographic trends with uh, – People moving to Texas from California. I've said that all along. Texas could be blue uh, within the next presidential. Yeah, that's cool. You know, that's very cool. Uh, that could help. I don't know if the, the scale is what we need. Yeah. It's cool. All right, Jason, I want to thank you again for taking the time to come talk to us. It's always a pleasure. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. <laughs>